Hey folks, welcome back to another installment of Brewing with Conviction. This is your host, Chris Martin, and for the episode, I am lucky enough to be joined by a roundtable of guests. I've got George Tudor, Vicker, and Jesus Garcia. Great to have you all on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks, man. As usual. We're going to be talking tonight about the ins and outs of selling magic cards, really looking to help organize thoughts of newer I guess players really that are in the market now of potentially offloading some of their cards in their collection couldn't be more of a relevant topic given everything going on with coronavirus and the current scheme of the market, you know, the secondary market, I should say. There's not enough sellers moving cards and buy lists being out. This is an opportunity, I think, for the small guy to win. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like and how to do that. To help organize this cast, we kind of broke our dialogue down into four subtopics that we feel are extremely relevant with regard to learning about how to sell magic cards. First category is sales platform pros and cons. Uh, Which sales platforms should you use is what we're going to be talking about there and why you should be using it. Then we're going to talk about inventory management. We're going to go into a little bit of a deep dive on sorting cards, how to pull cards, sorting them on TCG Player as well, or eBay or other things like that, listing practices. Next topic from there would be grading and pricing. So those are actually very closely related, inventory management and grading and pricing. All kind of go hand in hand, will segue nicely. And then finally, we're going to wrap it up with cost management and touch just briefly on shipping fees, handling, et cetera, things that allow you to save costs and, and increase your margins. And then at the very end, we have a couple of miscellaneous questions that didn't really fit cleanly into this, notably talking about European arbitrage and, and ways to take advantage of that. So we'll kind of quickly touch on those and we'll do some closing remarks and, and that'll wrap us up. So diving right in, the first question that we want to start with, I just touched on it and alluded to it, is the sales platform. And the, the question is as simple as this, which sales platform should I be using if I'm new to selling magic cards? So George, I'm going to pass it over to you to to let you kind of dive in and talk to us a little bit about the platform at hand that you that you choose. Initially, actually, I started on TCG just like uh, many of you who hopefully are listening to this are looking to do. And uh, what I did personally, I kind of looked and saw, okay, how much after shipping and fees am I going to make? Okay, based on that, what kind of cards does it make sense for me to sell? So as a level one seller. Um, you, you can't list very many cards at a time. You have a mandatory, I believe it's like $3.99 shipping charge, uh, which psychologically when people see basically any amount for shipping, they flip out for whatever reason. And, you know, it reduces your likelihood of getting a, sell, a sale. Um, so what I ended up doing personally, I think I stuck between like the 5 to 15 maybe $20 range for the cards I listed. Uh, that way I kind of stayed within a certain range and made sure I was still going to get a uh, decent return or or at least made some money on my cards. Because if you list too low, then you're not going to make any money and uh, the risk that, you know, we've talked about that you can run into. So you have that $3.99 that you have to put for shipping. Uh, Say the actual price of a card, TCG low price, including shipping is $5 and you list your copy at $1 with $3.99 shipping. Well, that's fine for that one card, but if you do that for 20 or 30 cards, um, then that's it's a combined shipping cost. So someone can come in, kind of clean you out uh, of all of your cards at a dollar that were maybe five, six, seven dollar cards, and that can really, really uh, kill your profit margins. Which at first you're not worried as much about. You're worried about getting your seller level up, 
but just a kind of a word of caution. Um, I also do sell on eBay some. Um, the reason I sell on eBay, some things either just don't sell as well on TCG. They take longer to sell. I know recently with Icoria uh, coming out, I was just kind of looking at both platforms, seeing what cards for were selling for the most where, and kind of based on that information, uh, I, I would list some on TCG and some on eBay. Um, eBay, is it's riskier for sure uh, as a seller. Um, you don't have nearly as much recourse as you do on TCG. It is much more seller-friendly on TCG. So there's pros and cons to each, but in a perfect world, you're selling on multiple platforms, and by far the two most popular ones for Magic cards are uh, eBay and TCG. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Brett, to Biospark, and I'm going to let him talk a little about the differences between TCG non-direct, which is what I sell uh, right now, versus TCG direct, which is, is the primary selling. So go ahead, Brett. I do most of my business on TCG Player. I actually started off on eBay, but I decided TCG was a lot more time efficient, and that's why I went there. But without further ado, yes, I'm a direct seller. Yes, there are huge pros and cons to it. But personally, I got approved for TCG Direct two years ago, and I do not regret it. The way TCG Directs works, I'll try to keep this brief, is that instead of packing and shipping every order yourself, you're periodically asked to put multiple orders in one package, and that goes to the TCG player headquarters in Syracuse, New York, and then they grade it, handle it, uh, and release the payment themselves. It's a great way to save on time, but it comes with a huge litany of pitfalls. For one, I cannot stress this enough, you have to grade strictly. They will kill you on downgrades if you don't do that. To get accepted into direct, you have to have a high volume and a spotless feedback for like three months. I got there. And if I find that it's amazing for EDH cards in particular because, you know, don't you like getting all your orders in one package or fewer packages? I know I do. So an EDH player looking to build their deck all in one fell swoop will go to the direct sellers and they will gladly overpay for this convenience. So that is where a big part of my business model comes along. Summary between these three, we've got TCG and non-direct and direct and eBay. If you're a new seller to the market, the easiest way to get started is probably going to be a combination of eBay and, and certainly TCG non-direct. There are a lot of qualifiers to get direct that really only kind of the medium size and up qualify for. There's, a, there's sales requirements around that. When you are starting on the TCG non-direct one of the key things about that is leveling up. And George, you kind of alluded to this a little bit already. There's four different tiers. Well, technically, there's five, but there's four tiers for the majority of us that are operating on TCG Player. At level one, you are forced a 399 shipping. You have to essentially accrue different amounts of feedback to go from level one up to level four, where you can then start to control your pricing better. You can offer free shipping, which is Kind of the quintessential part of tcg they do that actually tcg does that to kind of weed out new sellers um experienced sellers and it allows them to keep their feedback ratings the the, the importance of feedback ratings higher and, and you know kind of the integrity around that so in fact there's a thing called gold star sellers on tcg player which has all sorts of feedback requirements around that and that's what you're really striving for 
is to maintain feedback levels. It's it's basically four stars out of five or better on a consistency of I believe it's two hundred orders over a certain amount of time frame. And as you get that accrual and maintain that one hundred percent feedback rating, your seller status improves, which allows you to get the gold star, which can allow you to kind of stand out in in a buyer's eyes when you're side by side with other sellers on the same page. It takes some time to get there. And so the question about what, one of the questions we got when we were preparing this cast was what percent of buyers generally leave feedback? And, and really more importantly, if only a few are leaving feedback, how long is it going to take me to grind up from level one to level four so I can control my pricing and really kind of become more of a status quo seller? The answer is that there's actually a couple pieces to this. CCG player automatically leaves feedback for you after 14 days if the buyer doesn't. So you start to accrue feedback based on your sales without disputes, not necessarily with the sellers themselves manually clicking the, the button to leave you feedback, which is encouraging because it's in your control as long as you're doing all the other things that we're going to talk about later in this cast well. The feedback is not that difficult. And George, to allude kind of or d dive into something that you alluded to further, one of the pitfalls and one of the biggest risks of TCG is actually when you're first starting out, if you're listing a bunch of cards with that $399 forced shipping, you can find yourself underpriced if someone were to buy all of your cards. I've seen that happen before myself personally as a buyer where. New seller comes online, they put 10 cards out there, which is, I think, your initial cap when you're first listing cards. They put those 10 cards out there for, let's say, a dollar a piece when they're actually $5 cards. Someone just goes out and they buy all 10 cards, and now they just got your $4 in shipping divided by 10. They, they paid 40 cents per card, so they paid $1.40 for your $5 card. You basically just kind of get raked over the coals in that scenario and, and lose a ton of money. The way to get around that is to either list a bunch of low value cards and hope that someone buys a big order. So you can list a lot of bulk. That was actually how I got started, which is kind of, I think, uh, against the grain. I think a lot of people do it differently than that. I listed a ton of cards that were 20 cents, 25 cents tops, and people were just buying you know, lots of them, which was nice because I was getting rid of bulk and uh, you know, making money off of that, but also grinding my level up. There's an alternative way, which is you focus on 5 to $15 cards, only listing a couple at a time and listing them competitively with the price, the market price. So if someone only bought, let's say all three of your cards, yeah, you might lose a dollar overall had you been able to do free shipping, but you're not out as much money and you still get the sales. Either way that you look at that, that's a good little way to kind of start grinding it up. And it takes some time, you have to have patience. So, right. so that's, that's a little bit about the, the platform. I, I think in, in a nutshell, which platform you should use, it does depend, but TCG Player is a great starting point. It does take a little time and patience, but if you're, if you're a backpack seller, uh, Jesus, I, I definitely want to pass this over to you to talk about not necessarily using a platform at all. Yeah, so I actually got into backpack selling primarily because I was in downtown Milwaukee at the time, so I had a bunch of LGSs around me that I could kind of really leverage um so this is really good if you're in, in an area with a lot of lgs's or a lot of uh brick and mortar stores where you can kind of befriend the owners that's kind of how i end up moving my inventory so there are major downsides to it don't get me wrong 
But in terms of pricing, grading, stuff like that, since you're bartering with people in front of you, uh, often it leads to kind of people feeling like they got a fair bargain. Um, and what I mean by becoming befriending the LGS owners and stuff like that is you can actually talk. If you talk to LGS owners, if you frequent a lot of different LGSs and learn the metas, what you can do is essentially move cards between LGSs to be able to be like, oh, this LGS plays a ton of modern. Let me get modern staples from the EDH heavy LGS, bring them over and make money that way. And usually once you start like talking to these owners, befriending them, stuff like that, they'll cut you some deals. So then it's easier for you to be able to make profit. Um, this mostly started because, again, I was in downtown Milwaukee, and I only really tried to make a profit in order to expand my personal collection as a collector. That, a really quick question for you. Have you considered moving onto TCG Player? And if not, why? I think that would be helpful for folks to hear. You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all model by any means. I have thought of moving over to TCG Player, but the big problem for me with that is inventory and space i am i just literally just got out of college a year ago um i have very little space to work with little very little inventory to work with so what i do is since i predominantly move foils and higher value cards uh moving over to tcg with that um without having a large inventory to begin with is extremely difficult as I find it, it would probably be very hard for me to be able to level up efficiently. Um, and I don't like eating any sort of losses on that end because of my limited inventory. Makes sense. All right, so to, that wraps up our platform conversation. We're going to dive next into the subtopic of inventory. And so the next question here is to talk about inventory management. The first piece of that question is, how do you track it, right? How much time do you spend for it? And what's the most efficient, effective manner to track your inventory? Or kind of conversely, you could use the word collection interchangeably with in inventory, depending on the size of your uh, business model that you're planning on building out. So I'll get started on this. First of all, I'm going to say spreadsheets are your best friend when it comes to tracking inventory. They're extremely important. Doing them the right way isn't necessarily one size fits all either. And you'll hear us kind of probably say that a lot through the cast. You have to do what works for you. Not everyone who may be listening to this cast, you may be sitting here and saying, I don't use Excel, Microsoft Excel spreadsheets or uh, numbers if you're a Mac user may just not be as comfortable with them. You, you may not have the experience. I would challenge you first and foremost to learn as part of this. It's a great life skill outside of magic that you can take elsewhere with jobs and you know things like that throughout your career. Um, so I would definitely encourage that if you're not comfortable with it. If you are comfortable with Excel, there's a lot of great things you can do with them and, or with spreadsheets. And so I've been using an Excel spreadsheet to track my inventory, and actually it started with my collection for about 12 years now. I started in college back when I used to buy collections at garage sales and flip cards as singles on eBay. Uh, and I, I've never actually lost that spreadsheet. I still have it to this day. I've edited it. I've updated it. I've changed it, manipulated it. There have been probably about 190,000 records going in and out of that spreadsheet at this point in time. That's a rough estimate. I don't know where I'm at now, but that's where I was at about two months ago when I last looked at it. Might be over 200,000 at this point. 
The point is the spreadsheet has stuck with me for over a decade and it continues to be my best friend when it comes to both managing, managing my, my expenses, my profits, and also when it comes to taxis and managing that as well. So what are the important pieces of information that you have to track to, to efficiently and effectively do this? There's six of them. First is the cost of each individual card you purchase. And so what I mean by that is the purchase price plus shipping plus the tax that you pay, the sales tax. If you're a reseller, that's not really an, an issue. Sales tax won't apply to you. You'll actually collect it later on. So the sales tax gets deferred when you're buying from other vendors that you have your reseller certificate on file with. But purchase price and shipping still are relevant. And those end up becoming your cost of inventory, essentially. So for every card, you know what your purchase on that card was. That's going to help you track a lot of things down the road. The second thing that's extremely important is the date you purchased the card. And, and this is, can't emphasize this enough, this, this little piece of information goes so long in understanding the difference between short-term and long-term flipping. Like if you're you know, a volume-based seller, you can use this to kind of track how long something is sat in inventory for and if you need to adjust pricing. It also allows you to readjust your inventory at the time that you are supposed to be paying taxes at the end of each year. You can restate what your inventory cost is and, and what you're carrying over. The date you purchase, ultimately, I would actually say is probably the second most important piece of information along with the cost you paid. The third thing you want to track is the date you sell a card. So once you do sell a card, actually listing the sale date along with the price you sold the card for, that's number four, are crucial to being able to track all of your taxes, first of all. And also to track your return on investment, your your you know compared to what you paid for it, how much profit did you make, things of that nature. The dates can also the date you sold a card can also lead to some trend analysis as you accrue. If you plan on building your business from scratch and turning it into a larger online or even theoretically brick and mortar sales uh, model, these these type of uh, analysis that you can create with dates. Allows you to look at your data, your uh, data more, more uh, over like a trend period. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'm sorry, that's struggling through that. But um, the fifth and sixth thing that you want to track are the shipping and fees that you paid when you sold the card. So your cost of goods sold is what this is also referred to as. And these are going to be the the amounts of dollars that you're spending to basically make the transaction happen. It's it's not necessarily the sale price, but it's going to be part of your expenses. Need these for every single card you sell. So both when you buy and when you sell a card, if you sell multiple or buy multiple in a lot, very important to average out the shipping and the fees that you paid across the number of cards in the transaction so that you're getting an appropriate estimation of how much you both spent to buy inventory and then also how much you profited or you know when you sold the card. Best of all is the cost of all your supplies outside of that. And these are going to be things like top loaders, penny sleeves, envelopes, bubble mailers, et cetera. Those are just for tax purposes. They allow you to deduct uh, costs of doing business at the end of, at the end of your, your year when you're doing your taxes. And so those are some really good examples, kind of breezed over the basics. But having the card name, the quantity, the set that you purchase, the condition is actually really important too. It's really helpful when you're going to relist them, whether it's a foil or not. And then having some quick calculations to tell what your net profit or loss is. Those are all the basics, I think, of a, a good spreadsheet. 
Well, with this cast, one thing I wanted to mention is that we'll be putting a template that'll accompany as an attachment with this cast. It'll just be a template that, that newer sellers, if you're listening to this now, you'll be able to download and use to kind of get yourself off the ground if you've never done this before. This is actually really helpful even if you don't plan to sell, just to track your collection in general. So, George, I'm going to pass it over to you next to talk about sorting inventory. So I know that's the other question, right? Once you once you have a spreadsheet and you've got TCG players set up, let's say, how do you organize your cards to know where to go to pull them consistently when, when you actually hit a sale? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So I think I want to kind of break it up into two parts. The original question we had was... Uh, as far as like how is your inventory divided versus active inventory and long-term specs say like i don't know power reserve list staples etc for me the i guess bigger kind of overarching question is how do you organize period right because if you can't find your cards efficiently then uh you're gonna have a hard time selling uh and i speak from experience unfortunately it's something i'm in the middle of right now so uh words of wisdom if you're a one-man show, excuse me, one-person show, um, don't buy like hundreds of thousands of bulk. Uh, try to think that you're going to get through it on your own, if, if you know, effectively and efficiently, uh, and think that you're still going to make money. Um, at some point, you've really got to take into account the amount of time it's going to take uh, for you to go through stuff. So for me, what I'm trying to do now, I'm going to essentially have two separate inventories. One's going to be my personal collection cards that I'm going to keep for either EDH or other formats. And those I normally put uh, in card hotels. Um, I know Cool Stuff sells them. I don't know of other uh, vendors that sell them, but they're pretty easily available. I think BCW makes them. So it's literally just like a bigger box. It holds 16, or no, I'm sorry, 12 uh one row boxes within it and that's what i use personally for my personal collection so i'll just put you know whatever sets or blocks uh to fill up the card hotels and then for me uh, as a player and a collector it's a lot easier if you know if say if i'm looking for modern cards well i know the modern sets so then i can just kind of flip through to whatever sets i'm looking for for modern cards and i know exactly where they're at as a seller though uh, I do it a little differently. What I'm trying to do right now is get my inventory into set and alphabetical order. I know a lot of people want to try to, you know, make it more complicated, put their stuff in color order and things like that. But honestly, as a seller, uh, the biggest thing, you probably heard it before, and it's absolutely true, is time is money. Anything that you can do to reduce the amount of time that you are spending to find your cards, get them packed up and get them shipped uh, is going to save you money. Uh, because at the end of the day, you've really got to figure out a monetary value to put on your time uh, because if not then you know why are you doing this ultimately i can't agree with that more george it's really individually whatever makes sense for everyone else i've even heard of uh, some other uh people that sell you know within our discord that just do it alphabetically and it's something i've considered because if you've got other people helping you pack orders um that literally have no clue about any of this stuff as long as they know how to spell, then it's really easy if you've got it sorted alphabetically for people to uh, uh, find copies of their cards. Um, the one other thing that I do that I'm presuming is probably different for more people, but it's easier for me. I've got a ton of beat up stuff that I bought over time um, because I, once again, I bought a ton of bulk 
So what I have now is everything I have listed on TCG, I've gotten to essentially three separate boxes. I've got one for near mint and lightly played cards sorted in two different rows between foils and non-foils. I've got a moderately played box, and then I've got a box with heavily played or damaged cards. Uh, for me, that's what works. Uh, it may not be what works for everybody, uh, but it's super easy for me that way. You know, once I see a card that's sold, I just look at the condition. It's in alphabetical order in those boxes, and I'm able to pick it pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, once again, it's just going to be individual for most people. For me, set alpha uh, is what works most. And in, uh, for my personal collection, uh, for selling on TCG or eBay, I would recommend, you know, probably just alphabetical order. And then if you want to, sort by condition. Those are great tips. Thanks, George. All right. Well, so and then wrapping this up, Jesus, let's do the reality check, right? What's the reality look like? We called it organized chaos when we were preparing. So I'm going to pass it to you more from the backpack, uh, backpack grinder kind of standpoint on this. And, and just to do a reality check for all the listeners out there who, if you're feeling intimidated by everything we're talking about, just remember it's okay to kind of go this route. Jesus, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, because I move everything via as a backpack seller. Um, I literally just have everything sorted into like three different binders, a ton of different deck boxes. I as I posted a picture earlier of what is literally a repurposed toolbox of just cards that will move and sorted depending on LGS. I think will want it. So. Yeah, I mean, literally, it's organized chaos. If anyone else looks at it, they'll be like, how is this sorted at all? And the way I see it is, it's sorted enough. I can find things. I'm the only one who's going to be looking in there to begin with. So it's all good. <laughs> like, especially with my small inventory. So give you an anecdotal sample of where I started to. Um, so I started selling on TCG Player probably last four years i'm gonna say ballpark and when i first started it looked a lot of it looked a lot like what you sent jesus precast jesus sent us some photos of just basically like binders and and uh, drawers and stuff where all his cards are sorted and that's what mine looked like and i'll never forget i was on a trip for work out in new york and had this big sale it was like eight different cards sold and it was like a 180 dollar sale and i had to get tracking on it and i was like crap i'm not gonna be home for four days i gotta get this out the door so i gotta call my wife and have her pull this at that point in time it was not like you said george it wasn't alphabetized by any means there was some stuff that was color coded but other than that it wasn't in any sort of alphabetical order to the end of organized chaos jesus from the phone i called her and i told her exactly where all eight cards were almost you know to the point where i could like visualize being in the room with her pointing to them she found them all and it worked and she got them you know out the door the next day and she was irritated with me but we moved on and since then all my inventory is sorted by by alphabetical order now we don't have that problem anymore so anyway uh all right so that's a great that's a great i think wrap up of overall kind of inventory management and just talking a little bit about organizing and and spreadsheet management as well there's just one other question we have Regarding inventory, and this is a little bit more specific to, I would say, MTG Finance, and particularly with regard to speculating, we'll go ahead and just do a quick roundtable on this. It, the question was, what percentage of your inventory is active inventory, meaning that you're looking to sell it immediately, 
versus long-term speculation or, or things like power, which you're basically sitting on and kind of setting a price and just leaving it there until it sells. I'll go ahead and start. So most of my inventory, I would say probably 95% of my inventory is active in the sense that I'm trying to move it. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm pricing it TCG low, for example. I, I don't necessarily price competitively so much so that I won't make a profit, but all of my inventory is active in the sense that it's priced competitively enough that it will sell eventually. There are certainly some that I think some specs in there that I thought would move faster and end up turning into the quote unquote long-term specs, aka also known as the box of shame. Those are fewer and far between because I've adopted little bit of a different methodology with my business, which we'll talk about in a couple questions from now. Uh, but for the most part, my inventory remains active. I'm, I'm consistently churning a, you know, a half dozen or a dozen sales on a good day uh, every day. And then for you know, days that are a little slower, it's maybe one to, one to five, I would say. I don't have a lot of long-term specs and, and that's just a business decision. I used to, and it, it just wasn't efficient for me. And I, I wanted to churn more volume instead. George, I'll pass it over to you to talk about your inventory. Sure. So I think I'm probably at the same rate. I, I probably got a little higher uh, reserve list collection because I uh, try to play legacy. But in general, mine's probably 90-10, 95-5 as well, Chris. Uh, the other thing that I don't do yet, but I think is super important, and I know in retail, this is probably the biggest part of their uh, strategy is the churn rate. Uh, so to your point, Chris, uh, going back to kind of your spreadsheet tracking, I think it's critically important to try to keep track of how long you have a card before it actually sells. Um, I know I was talking to uh, Brett about this the other day. It's it's great and all. So for me buying bulk, right, it's great if I buy a card for 10 cents and I sell it for a dollar, but it's more, you know, how long does it take for me to sell it for a dollar? If it takes five years, I probably could have taken that 10 cents and invested it in basically anything else during that time and made a dollar somewhere. Um, so your train rate's really important because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is turn your money over and over and over again. And the people that are best in this business, that's what they do. Um, so as far as uh, what, as far as what my, my active inventory, it's, that's, so now I try to keep it active. I try to keep, you know, more cards coming in that are, uh, popular, whether it's EDH, whether it's other, you know, actual uh, constructed format specific. Those are the cards that I really try to focus my time on. As far as my bulk, uh, I'm turning that over. But granted, I, I'm doing that essentially, we would call it as a loss leader. That's kind of like the Walmart of the world, right? Now, they can still sell stuff at the cheapest price because they're just concentrating on low margins, but high turnover. So they're just trying to, once again, trying to turn over their inventory as much as humanly possible. They don't care if they're only making, you know, 10% versus say maybe Amazon or Target's making 40 to 50%. But if it's taken that, you know, say one of those stores or we can just do it from the MTG world. If it takes someone six months to sell a $10 card for $20 and it takes you one month to sell a $10 card for $20, well, you're doing better because, you know, if you're turning over that $10 card into $20 more often than your competitors, then you're going to be able to uh, build your bankroll a lot faster than your competitors. So um, to that point, Chris, I, I think it honestly makes more sense if you have the time component, going back to that, right, uh, to actually uh, work with the market actively. 
then it makes a lot more sense to have an active inventory. Conversely, um, and that is higher risk too, right? You, you can buy in a spec and not all specs are going to be hits. To your point, we've all got a box of shame. I got a two row sitting literally right here to my left with a bunch of failed specs. But uh, um, if you want to play it the safe route, just like, you know, essentially, if you want to think of, of a stock market, it'd be stocks and bonds. Stocks are more volatile, more risky, but higher reward. Bonds are, you know, usually way lower return, but it's, it's guaranteed return. You're not going to lose any money. Uh, your guaranteed return in Magic, for the most part, is going to be sealed product and reserve list cards, uh, especially, and to be more specific with reserve list cards, I'm talking, you know, the high-end ones. So, you know, your guys' cradles, your dual lands, Mox Diamond, Grim Monolith, anything like that that is super popular in, you know, either Legacy and or Vintage as well as uh, EDH. So those are the cards that you can kind of set it and forget it. You can invest money in. And five years from now, it's not 100%, right? Nothing's ever guaranteed. What's the uh, little thing that they always tell you? It's uh, what? Past gains do not represent uh, future returns. So you can't always count on the past to predict the future. But in general, in Magic, uh, you know, sealed product and reserve list, high demand reserve list cards are kind of the king, cream of the crop as far as guaranteed returns go. Yeah. I, I will add one thing to that, which I think is really important. The If you read this question differently, what percentage of your inventory is active inventory versus long-term specs like power, and you think of it from a brand new seller perspective, one of the things that I think back on when I was becoming a seller is how hard it was to separate the notion of having a magic collection versus having a magic inventory. So if you're new to this and you're just getting in, let's say you have thousand magic cards or I don't know 10 EDH decks, right? That's the equivalent. So let's say you have 10 EDH decks and a binder of cards sitting around and you want to sell all of your extra stuff that's laying around that you don't need. It's probably a little bit easier to think of it in that context. Like, okay, I know my, my collection of these 10 decks and I know the, these binders over here are what's going to go on TCG or eBay or wherever you decide to sell. But if you start to crew cards from a speculative perspective because you're trying to save money on the game let's say so let's say you start to buy two copies of cards when you want to buy one for your deck you buy a second one because you feel like the second one will go up in price and it can pay for the first one i've seen and experienced this personally a lot of scenarios with with people who i've talked to i've heard i should say not seen but heard scenarios and seen it firsthand where it's very difficult sometimes to part with that extra card or with, let's say you spec on cards, you win, right? And they go up, they go up 50% or 100% or whatever. But it's like, there's this, there can be this kind of nagging voice that's like, oh, you should just keep me and build around me, build a deck around me, put me in your deck. Like that is something that's extremely important to remember if you're getting into this game of selling magic cards, do not attach yourself to the cards that you plan to sell always remember that when cards go up in price they also come down in price so if you are buying a card for the purposes of profiting you know and, and selling it later that is that should emphasize that in your you know if you have to make a note for yourself or remind yourself or however you want to do it it's very important to remember that because what i've seen happen and i experienced this firsthand with my for myself is i bought cards they would go up and I would have this sense that I didn't want to sell it, whether it was because I thought they would keep going up or because I felt like I would play with the card myself. And the next thing I know, the card goes back down and it's back to the price that I paid, or in some cases, even lower than I paid because it got reprinted. So anyway, that's some feedback there. 
All right. So in the interest of time, we're going to move on to the next question. George, this one's for you. This is a really quick question, but um, you are the king of bulk. You've talked about your inventory a lot. And one of the questions was around pricing. This is our next subtopic. The, the first question that came up around pricing was talking about sub $2 cards and understanding the decision to just buy, buy list them or to sell them yourself. And, and is there a sort of methodology to that madness. So George, I'm going to turn that to you because you you sell a lot of sub $2 cards. I want to hear your thoughts here. Honestly, I would say this really depends on your personal financial position. Um, I, me personally, and this isn't trying to brag, it's not humble brags, I swear, but I, I have a six figure income. So this is probably a terrible use of my time. Um, the people that are just starting out uh, that, you know, are I'd say your younger 20s, right? You're just getting out of school, maybe entry-level job, not making very much money. This can be a fantastic way to start building uh, some revenue. Um, so what I used to do, I would buy, I would just, you know, reach out on Facebook, Craigslist, whatever, say, hey, I'm buying bulk rares for, you know, whatever the going rate is. I think right now the bulk rare rate is eight cents a card. Um, so, you know, and you get a lot of people that if you're willing to take that risk, okay, well, instead of sending in the Star City or Channel or Card Kingdom, okay, you're a fellow player and collector, I'll give you the chance. Well, what happens, for better or worse, unfortunately, you know, people are lazy. There's no other way to put it. And you'll find some gems. I've bought bulk before and I found, you know, Siege Rhinos and Dig Through Times and Selfless Spirits, you know, and I'm talking, these are anywhere from what, you know, $1 to $5. As far as listing them versus buy listing them, I would say you've really got to sit down, take the time, as Chris kind of mentioned before, and build a spreadsheet first. That's what I have is that, uh, you know, I take a look at all of my costs. So all of your costs, you know, that means what your envelopes, your stamps, your top loaders, your sleeves, um, literally the ink uh, that you print your paper on, the paper if you, you know, print, um, you got to incorporate all that stuff. And then you got to do some math, right? Take how much did I spend on the card? Versus if I sell it for X amount on TCG, typically, you know, the TCG low price, what am I going to make after fees and shipping? And then if it's anywhere close to the buy list number for me, I'll just send it to a buy list. And honestly, at this point, based on my math, anything that's less than 50 cents, it's better off for me just to send off to a buy list. Even if I get, you know, 10 cents or 25 cents. Okay, well, yes, I'm probably taking, I don't know, a few cent loss. But if you compare the few cents I'm losing to the amount of time I'm gaining by not having to list it and then pack it and everything else, it, it's just not worth the trouble. But but if you're first starting out, I think it's a, one of the best ways you can do it is if you're able to buy a local collection or just buy bulk um, because it's not a zero sum game for the most part. As long as you're making clear that you, know, you want lim lightly played copies are better and you're very strict with that, well then, you know, a bulk rare's price it doesn't change much. It's going to be seven or eight cents. It used to be ten cents. So you're literally either going to break even for the most part if you actually get nothing but bulk rares. But more times than not, you're going to be able to go through. You're going to be able to find those quarters, fifty cents a dollars. And I'm talking from a buy list perspective. And then there's going to be other cards that you're going to be able to list for a really healthy profit. Uh, to give an example, probably the best one I have. I've showed Brett this, and I don't know if I've showed the other two. But uh, there was a you know a couple years back where I was able to get a ton of commander stuff in bulk, and because you know everybody's different, right? Everybody's situation's different. I've got a wife, I've got three kids, I've got a full time job, so very busy. I haven't had time to list everything, hence what I'm working on now. 
Uh, I've been listing stuff recently, and there was a jet medallion from, I think, Commander 2014 that I paid 11 cents for. I was able to sell it for $15. You're not going to get those kinds of returns percentage-wise anywhere in the world. You're not going to get them on the stock market. You're not going to get those. So you're going to find gold mines like that. Um, but once again, it's the matter of what kind of time do you have? What's your financial situation? So I would say it, it differs for everybody. But as far as buy listing in general, yeah, anything less than probably $1. For me, it's 50 cents because I'm trying to uh, gain every incremental advantage I have uh, because I have bought so much bulk in the past. And I'm trying to maximize the value I get back. But you've got to assign a value to your time. Um, and I'll kind of discuss this in detail at the end. I know we're running short on time, but you've really got to know your outs and know where you plan on selling these. And that's where, you know, doing a little bit of homework on buy list and knowing what you're willing to take versus how much you might be able to get on TCG. You can make a very educated decision on which route to take. One of the things that I've done with my inventory to diversify it a little bit, and I, I actually have not been able to, it's tough because this is up on my time a lot, but what I've done is when I buy collections or even if I buy booster boxes, like let's say I'm able to get a hookup and get booster boxes at, at cost, for example, so I'm going to have a little bit of inventory uh, you know, to that extent. I typically will start with buy lists at like Card Kingdom and find out what are all the commons, uncommons, and rares that buy lists for a nickel, a dime, or a quarter. I take those and I, I still add those to inventory. Anything that doesn't show up there, I typically just move in like a bulk listing and you know, I might even just sell something like that on eBay and sell you know, 100 bulk rares or whatever. But I will keep the ones that are playable enough to maintain a quarter or less on buy lists because those are typically indicators that the cards are still moving. They, by having those in inventory, I find that I don't have a very wide inventory. I'm typically kind of more of a speculator. And so my inventory is deep in specific cards, not wide with a lot of cards. When I do have those cards in stock, I find that I get a lot more diverse sales where I'm, I'm able to price cards or like TCG median as opposed to low in certain cases. Um, similarly, if you're speculating on an entire commander, for example, and you know that you've got six or seven of the pieces that someone would need to build that commander, you can typically charge TCG median roughly because of that. So um, anyway, I just want to kind of chime that in, that having bulk on your, or $2, basically some $2 cards on your inventory can help basically net you value elsewhere and allow you to charge higher prices on some of the more in-demand cards. So moving on to the next pricing category, and this one overlaps a little bit into inventory. We're going to talk just quickly about how we grade. Uh, so we touched on TCG Direct and the importance of strict grading. My philosophy on grading is pretty much like this. If the card is $2 or less, I pretty much, pretty much always just push them into a lightly played category unless I know that it's a brand new pack fresh card, which I'll then list it near mint. Uh, I do typically... Second check or you know uh, second set of eyes all my cards as I package the orders. So when I'm pulling the cards, if I do notice anything glaring, obviously I try to catch it before I send it to the send it to the buyer and and you know get dinged for bad condition. The reason I typically generically list and lightly played for two and two dollars and less is because it saves me time. I don't even have to think about it. If I give someone a near mint copy and you know it costs me twenty five cents for them to get a better condition, that's 
my perfect clip opinion, that's worth it to me. It saved me the time to list it at that speed. And it might even net me better feedback or a return customer, things along that those lines, because they get a card that's in better condition than they expected. I, I love that feeling, frankly. I, I love being able to give people more than they expected in general. And I think that's been a very fruitful endeavor for me. The other thing is when you're grading foils and the importance of that, foils are extremely sensitive in the market. Foils and older cards, things that are reserve list or, you know, it doesn't even have to be reserve list, but things that were printed in the mid 90s. Those are the type of cards that you want to spend a lot of time grading to make sure that they're they're in the exact condition that you're listing and always be conservative with those. I want to talk about TCG Direct now. This is no exaggeration. You have to treat near mint as gem mint or they will reject it, especially with foils. In fact, I don't even take my chances hardly at all with foils anymore. No matter how clean the foil is, I list it as lightly played because they will reject foils that are fresh out of the pack if they think something is wrong with them, like the slightest imperfection. They, you have to be BGS 10 for them to accept near mint direct on a foil. No joke. And even with non-foils, uh, they are very quick to downgrade for the slightest imperfection. And the consequences of having your direct sale downgraded are really dire. You basically lose all the money for the sale, and they might also charge you a restocking fee. So please don't let that happen. Err on the side of caution and grade everything a grade lower than you think it really is because they can't punish you for grading too low. That's a great piece of advice. I would also encourage, uh, if, if you are listening to this and you're interested in TCG Direct, it's certainly a stretch goal. The TCG Direct is for an advanced or you know experienced, maybe expert level, you could even say, seller, uh, there, because of all the nuances that go into it. Brett is planning on writing an article about TCG Direct more specifically to highlight some of those nuances. So. All right, so we're going to move on to our next category, or sorry, it's our last question within the pricing category. Just a quick rundown of what the best way is to set your price when you're first listing on TCG. And then I think one of the challenging things, or probably maybe even the most challenging things, is managing your inventory longer term. So let's say as you start adding cards that don't sell, how do you keep those prices current to move them? And what's the best way, this was also a question that someone asked, what's the best way to avoid selling into a spike? I'm going to go ahead and start. The, the question about best way to set your price when you're first listing, it's basically you're going to want to start with TCG low as a starting point if you're a new seller. Uh, and we talked about the $399 for shipping earlier. The, the, the notion that you have for shipping until you level up to level four seller status on TCG player is a tricky, uh, you know, tricky thing to navigate. So you have to be cognizant of not losing too much money by listing a few cards with that four shipping. But as you get out of that and you get up to level four, and you can offer that free shipping, it really then depends on how uh, how deep your inventory is and what your model is going to be. If you're planning on doing a just you know a low volume, uh, low margin, like you just want to flip cards, right? You just want to sell your duplicates and your extras and stuff and generate a little bit of cash flow so that you can buy the cards you need. And TCG low is where you want to be because you're going to move cards quickly at that point. And you're going to be able to just, you know, get them in, get them out, get your money and move on. 
Uh, and I say TCG low as a pricing standpoint. What I mean by that is that's the price you should aim to set at. If you're selling on eBay, you can sometimes use eBay, eBay low as, as an indicator as well. So if you sort your eBay listings before you sell your card, or, or sorry, before you list your card for sale, you sort the existing listings and find out what TCG, I'm sorry, eBay low is at. Undercutting that a little bit can help get the sales there as well. But TCG low tends to be what a lot of people use to price a card in general when they start shopping. So being at that point is, is often the best way to get a sale quick. If you have a more diverse inventory, it's easier to charge higher prices. Also, if you have four or mores and you're especially operating in standard, modern, uh, or pioneer, for example, and you have four of a card, then you can definitely get away with charging a little bit more. My model is built more around that. And I typically will have on the cards that I do speculate on or just buy into inventory in general, I typically buy anywhere from four to eight copies usually. That's kind of my sweet spot. And if it is a modern card, I can typically charge a little bit more. Same with standard, same with Pioneer, because typically those cards are used as four ofs, not always, but for the most part. Um, so that's kind of a, a thing to be cognizant of. In those cases, I'm more, I would say, more in line with TCG median as opposed to low, somewhere in between there. And so I might not necessarily be on the first or second page of TCG player, but rather third or fourth page. That allows you to get a little bit of a higher margin. It also sometimes allows you, if you have multiple copies listed of the same card, to get sales where they buy multiples in quantity, which can save you on shipping costs and everything else kind of behind the scenes. So that's a little bit about my, my methodology for pricing. Uh, George, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about keeping your price current and the idea of set it and forget it. There's a couple of different things you can do. So for some people, you know, you buy a card, you've got it got uh, in mind, you know, all right, I want to make this much, you know, either this amount of dollars or cents or this percentage. Typically, you want to deal with percentage. That way you can be variable with your price and be flexible or you need it. But you can do that and say, okay, I, I just want to make whatever it is, 30% on this card. And then you set, you, you got to do the math once again, back out all of your costs and say, okay, um, before all of my costs are taken out, you know, what do I need to set the card at to make sure that after all of my costs are accounted for, I make X percent more than what I paid for the card. So you can do that and then just essentially set it and forget it and know that, you know, if you do that, it really just depends on your price compared to the price of other copies in the market, right? So supply and demand. Um, if the supply of the card is high, but the demand is not, then you may set your card at a price that you're comfortable with, but you may it may sit there for a long time. It could be months or even years before it reaches that price, you know, due to other people buying cheaper copies. Uh, Conversely, you know, what you can do is you can be more active, more fluid. That's what I try to do is uh, you try to, you know, essentially stay within a either at the bottom of the market or close to it. So, you know, going back to your churn rate, right? If you want to move your cards as quickly as possible, the only way to do that in a highly competitive market uh, like selling magic cards is both on TCG and eBay is you've got to be close to the bottom of the barrel. There's no other way around it. So, if you want to keep moving your inventory over and over again, understanding that if you do it that way, you're going to have lower profit margins. Uh, then you price them, you know, either at or below TCG low to move them. In fact, people that sell on Facebook, uh, they routinely do that. They price their cards at about 10 to 15% below TCG low 
And in doing so, you kind of create a win-win for both the buyer and the seller. Uh, the buyers are able to buy cards cheaper than them what they would buy them for on TCG Player. And the seller, if they're selling at 10% below TCG low or eBay low, they're going to make a little bit more actually um, after shipping because you're not paying that 12.75% uh, fee plus the flat 30 cent fee that they take on cards. Uh, the other way you can do it, uh, Chris alluded to, is kind of to set it and forget it. I know of a few people, and this works a lot better with the higher end, higher uh, dollar value cards where you kind of know, okay, I've got X invested into it. Once again, you've still got to know what you want to make after fees and shipping. You've got to calculate that number and say, okay, I want to make X number of dollars or X percent. This is what I need to price the card at to make sure I hit that number. And then you just set it and forget it. And once again, that's just like stocks. You kind of set your own price and you just let it sit there. And however long it takes to sell that price is how long it takes. And that's a guaranteed rate of return that way, but you don't know how long it's going to take to get there. I would just caution, George, it's not necessarily a guarantee unless it sells. Just, no, just to notate that. Yes, it, whatever you have, it's a great point, Chris. It's uh, In fact, my wife tells me that every single day with all the bulk I have. It's uh, until it sells, it's literally, you know, whatever, cents, dollars, hundreds, thousands of dollars that you have invested in literal pieces of cardboard. So until they sell, it's, you know, that's your essentially it's your sunk cost whatever you paid for it is what you've paid for it uh you know chris that's the other thing i want to mention when we're talking about price is that i think people are so afraid to sell at a loss and that's something that you got to get away from if you're going to buy and sell magic cards you're going to have to understand that you're not always going to make a profit on everything and at some point so many people just get attached to the fact, well, I didn't make my number, so now it just makes sense to not sell at all. And that's a terrible way to do business. If you want to keep doing well in this business, you've got to kind of know what the old Kenny Rogers saying, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I've lost whatever it is, 10, 15, even 50%. I've sold cards at massive losses. But at the end of the day, something is better than nothing. So uh, I think that's a really important point for folks to understand as well, that sometimes you got to understand that you're going to take a loss and that's just kind of part of the business. It's okay as long as you get something out of your investment and you turn it around and put it into the uh, next thing. Right. Yeah. If you're hitting on 80% of your inventory, losing the losses on the 20% won't kill you because you're going to take that money and reinvest it into the 80% that's winning. So um, anyway, yeah, that's a really great point. Some cost is, the hardest things it goes kind of back to also what i was talking about of not getting attached to your inventory those two things go hand in hand they're they're probably the two biggest pitfalls of selling in magic and you absolutely have to stay away from those All right so wrapping this up there's one last thought on pricing that i wanted to mention which is regard to in regard to the question around avoiding selling into a spike i think what the question that we got from one of our members in conviction gaming what they were asking is how do I avoid not losing out on, on the money that I could have otherwise gotten if I, I sold a card as it was spiking and then you know instead could have sold it at a new higher price? Reality is very simple. Leave the last 10% for the next person. It's, it's okay to, if you walk away with a profit, you should be happy with that. It's okay to leave money on the table and walk away and go find the next spec there's nothing wrong with making money. And I think a lot of people along the same lines of forgetting to sell when you're going to net losses, 
lot of people have a tendency in my experience and I was like this, this is something I had to break mentally as I, as I aged and gained experience with this. I had a tendency to look back at cards I sold and, and kick myself and why did I sell that at $10 and now it's at $20 and I forget that I bought it for $2 or $5, whatever the number was, I still walk away with a profit. The answer is just remember you're green. You made money. You walked away. You made money. You can reinvest it into something else. You didn't walk away losing money. And in that particular case, what helped me get past that was to stop worrying about the car. Once I sold it, that was it. I sold it. I packaged it. I recorded my sale. I packaged it up, sold it, sent it to the buyer, moved on. And I never checked the card again. And, and if I did happen to check in and realize, oh man, I missed out on $10, so be it. It is what it is. Uh, you kind of just have to accept that. But there is no wrong way or right way to avoid selling into a spike. The, the reality is it happens. And one other kind of you know plug for Conviction Gaming Discord, we do call out price trends daily, constantly. So if you're an active member in our Discord, we can help notify this. In fact, we have people in our Discord who know my store, Chicago Style Gaming, well, and they've alerted me in the past Say, hey, Chris, raise your price because this card, you're up next and it's selling like a hotcake. That's um, saved me money and I've been able to raise my price and sell at that higher price point. So that's kind of a plug for the Conviction Gaming Discord and a thank you to some of the members in there who have alerted to that. If you are a member of the Discord, it can be a very useful tool to, to avoid that from happening. Hey, Chris, one more thing I wanted to add super fast. I'm sorry I didn't say it earlier. The other thing that uh, people can do uh, that lists their cards on TCG Player. There's actually a uh, price analysis tool that you can go into as a seller, and it analyzes and shows you uh, your current price. It's th sorry, the price differential report. It shows what you have your cards listed at versus what the lowest uh, listing is, and you can also set it to where it shows if you're the lowest listing, and if so, how much you're the lowest buy. So um, that's something I think you know. Kind of the basis would be check it if you can check it weekly at least. Um, and if not, then maybe, you know, once every month or once every quarter, that way you make sure if you've got cards that are sitting and not selling, most of the time, the reason is you don't have them priced correctly. Great ad there, George. Uh, the pricing tool on TCG Player is, is super handy. There's no doubt about that. All right. So we're going to wrap up these last couple of questions. The fourth and final category, really just one question that I want to touch on that is kind of broad and it's just cost management. The most important elements of being a seller is as you scale your, your side business or real business, whatever this turns into for you, you want to cut your costs as much as you do. You want to make money by selling cards, right? And by cutting costs, what you're effectively doing is raising your margin. To do that, you, there's a few different ways you can you can cut costs. The the easiest one is shipping and handling. So buying things in bulk like stamps and top loaders and penny sleeves, you can that can save you money over time. I also encourage you to look at PayPal's multi-order shipping feature or PirateShip.com. Those are both a couple of really great ways to save, particularly on tracked orders. They both retail, the cost of their tracking on PayPal and PirateShip is actually lower than USPS retail, but it is USPS postage. So you can save, you know, it, it might only be 25 cents or 50 cents or whatever the number might be on a per order basis. But I'll tell you what, it adds up. When you do even 100 sales, you're, you're talking $10 or, or $25. And 
as you start to get into the thousands of sales, it really does add up fast. So definitely encourage that. The other thing is tracking of orders. We typically don't recommend tracking orders unless they are over $50. And the reason for that is primarily just a numbers game. If you were to sell 100 tracked orders, uh, or I'm sorry, 100 orders under $50, the likelihood of more than one or two of those theoretically going missing, putting that in quotes, because we know some people just claim that they're missing in certain cases. And unfortunately, there's unethical, unethical people out there, and we'll just acknowledge that. But the, the idea here is majority of the magic community, in my personal experience, is extremely honest. Trust your buyers. Your buyers are not out there to shoot you in the foot. If you do them right and, and give them the card in a good quality manner, buyers in general are very, very understanding, honest, true to their word. And, and I frankly am super impressed by just the general customer base in the magic community. It's a very impressive customer base overall, having worked in customer service. I haven't seen or dealt with a ton of what I would call bad apples. And because of that, tracking orders under $50 isn't as, as relevant or needed as you would think it is. You will save money in the long run by not doing that, by not spending the 3 to $4 to track every order that is $30 or $40. It just, it eats into your margins so much. So I would definitely underline that. Uh, finally, Nice little transition there for one of our miscellaneous questions that kind of fits into this is buyer re, uh, resolution and disputes. So handling those, and George, I'm going to pass this back to you to talk just briefly about the, the way that you handle uh, dispute resolution and things like that. Yeah, thanks. So essentially what I try to do to your point, Chris, it's most magic players in general, most buyers are decent human beings. They're, they're honest. Uh, but both on the seller side and the buyer side mistakes happen i've unfortunately accidentally sold cards you know say someone bought four of a card and i was just tired while i was packing and missed the quantity and accidentally packed one in general you'll get a nice response that hey you only sent me one i actually ordered four and as the seller you can say no big deal i apologize i'll send you the other three copies no no problem or i've had things where i've either oversold or stuff wasn't in the right condition in general more communication is better than less, especially as the seller. Um, you know, conversely, uh, I've had issues, you know, like what I've had today where, you know, you have some buyers that just they aren't reasonable. There's no other way to put it. And that's not every buyer, but they are out there. Um, what I would say is more if you can come to an amicable resolution that makes sense both for you as the seller and the buyer, uh, then by all means, you should do so. If um, the buyer's being hard headed, not easy to work with, you know, they're demanding uh something that just doesn't make any sense uh then at that point that's where you want to escalate it that's where you want to involve you know whether it's ebay support or tcg support explain the situation show your side of the story uh and in more times than not they're going to want to help you because you know the more that you sell on their platform the more in fees they're collecting from you so it's in their best interest if you're happy as a seller and you don't go to the competition um so i would just say in those cases you know just try to be a decent human being. That's really the gist of it, right? If you have good customer service, you're understanding with if the buyer has issues and vice versa, just try to be as empathetic and apologetic as possible when you do make mistakes for human beings, then you should be fine. But if you've got those buyers that are hard headed that, you know, don't want to come to a reasonable conclusion at that point, you know, 
I don't mind if you need to just go ahead and block them. That's the good thing about TCG is the fact that if you have a really hard time with a buyer, there's a point in the seller portal that says block buyer and you can literally block them from seeing any of your listings going forward. Yeah. And you can do that on eBay as well, George. It's just not as convenient. Unfortunately, it's a little more hidden, but I, I definitely agree with you. I would say in my experience, if you're apologetic, there are times that I've personally felt where I like knew that I sent like a packed fresh mint foil, for example, and it's like, okay, whatever. Like you're just being really nitpicky here and you're frustrated, but you got to bury the emotion and just apologize say sorry and ask them what they're what they uh, are expecting right what, what would they expect as an amicable resolution if it doesn't work for you then that's you you let them know what their options are certainly in fact i usually start with what here's what the options are and they go from there but um sometimes if you have someone who's being hard-headed it's it, it pays to ask them what they want as an amicable resolution and it might just be extra 25 cents and a refund or you know something very meaningless to you just to get it done and over and move on. Uh, and to your point, George, there are cases where you just sometimes have to block buyer. It, it, it happens and it is part of the game. And I, I haven't had to do it very many times, but it does happen. So um, anyway, I think that's a great wrap up. So the last topic, and this is the kind of miscellaneous subtopic that is we talk about arbitrage and Europe, Japan, China, um, overseas in general and moving cards to and from and and there were a couple questions around this related to really just how to develop a network for arbitrage opportunities and then if you have that um, you know what, what are some of the tips there we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about how to do this and, and the tips but I'll give just kind of a paired kind of write-up that I did but the most important thing and this is actually extremely important just in selling magic in general is connections knowing the people that you work with the most frequently for example a mail carrier having like tipping your mail carrier such a simple thing to do but it goes so far in making your experience as a seller of magic cards a better one and in the case of arbitrage you have to have connections you have to have strong connections developed to the conviction gaming community other discord communities um twitter you could you can meet them through a variety of facebook the buy sell group in facebook a lot of different ways to to develop these relationships once you have the relationships trust is important and also the the logistics are extremely important and what i mean by logistics is understanding how long it will take to get cards in hand from one part of the world to the other i personally have dabbled with arbitrage and no disrespect or, or frustration or bad words to say about any of the people I've worked with. I think everybody who I've worked with to try this has been just tremendous. But the challenge that I've had is how long it takes to get the cards in hand. The reason that's so important to me is because I am a quick churn and burn. I have adopted to this mentality that I want to buy cards and have them back on the market sold within four weeks or less. When you have to depend on European or uh, Japanese or Chinese shipping and, and customs and all the things that come with that, the likelihood of getting the cards in hand in 10 days or less is, is kind of far-fetched in some cases. And by the time you get the cards in hand, you run the risk of whatever card you bought, the price is already starting to flatline and bottom. 
And then you're racing to the bottom just to eke out some amount of gains, if anything. That was my experience the few times I've tried this. And so I've kind of passed on it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it works really well, though. Arbitrage, if you have a good connection and you can get the cards in 10 days or less, works really well, particularly with EDH, uh, because the U.S. moves EDH cards a lot faster. And not only that, but it moves them at a typically a much higher price point. So what we've seen develop over these last, especially last probably 18 months or so, is that as the EDH market has been growing in the U.S., not keeping up growth overseas as much. I mean, it's still growing, but it's just not nearly what U.S. is is bringing to the table. We've seen arbitrage opportunities in the EDH world where spikes happen in the U.S. Cards like Cyclonic Rift will jump in price to go up fifty percent or whatever, and you can still find them overseas for the old price and and even less because they already were lower to begin with, uh, just because the demand wasn't there overseas. So you can work with your your arbitrage partners to pick up those copies, ship them over. It is very important to also remember that there's shipping costs, custom costs, or fees, I should say, customs fees. So shipping just like, let's say, a dozen Cyclonic Rifts is not viable. You'll, you'll lose money on that because of all the associated costs. So you need to find ways to build orders up and ship them kind of all together to eat up that, that shipping costs and the customs fees and things like that. So that's a little bit about just the network for arbitrage, how to find the connections. Finding the connections, it's up to just networking. You just got to network. And in terms of doing it successfully, uh, it's really important to know what you're getting into, which is a nice segue into our closing remarks and talking about knowing your outs. And George, I'm going to pass that back to you to wrap this up. For anyone that's made it this long, thank you guys so, so much for listening. Just That's by far the most important of selling magic cards i've learned over the years is knowing your outs so literally i can't stress this enough as someone that has several hundred thousand bulk cards currently sitting here is know your outs but before you even buy the card uh, even if it's a great deal and that's my problem i'm a sucker for value you've got to think okay if i buy this card how am i going to sell it where am i going to sell it how much do i think i'm going to be able to sell it for if you don't have all of that information before you make a purchase, then you shouldn't make the purchase. Um, and if you want to do well in this and actually make a profit, then you know it's super, super important to know your outs, whether it's a buy list, whether it's your local community, you know you can sell the cards at, like Jesus has with kind of the backpack grinding, you know, whether it's TCG or eBay, uh, whether it's an overseas partner or an, even across the country partner, if you don't know your outs, like you, you're just setting yourself up for failure. So probably the most important part of MTG finance in general is just it, that's it's that it's knowing your outs it's knowing that if you buy a card where can you sell it uh once you have that down then you can make educated decisions and you can kind of decide based on where you're going to where you plan on selling it and how much you think you're going to be able to sell it for does it make sense for me to buy it um and of course once again that's going to be kind of at everyone's own discretion but to me that's the most important part if you don't know your outs then you know what are you going to do with a card if you don't know then you're literally just buying it and then i don't know hoping something comes up and a failure to plan is a plan to fail george it's good stuff i'm just going to add one thought as well that i want to add for closing remarks and then we'll wrap it up here the, the importance if you're a new seller and you listen to all this information the importance of of understanding your investment also comes into play here so if you're just getting started with this 
take it easy. Don't feel obligated to put, you know, hundreds of dollars into becoming a seller all at once. It's very important to just do it, even if it means that you start with one spec. One thing that I've seen, one of the coolest business models I've ever seen is one of my good friends, Ben, who exclusively operates in TCG player store credit. What he does is he speculates on a handful of cards, sells them through his, you know, his TCG player seller portal is kind of just slowly grinding the levels. Instead of even getting payouts, he just gets paid in store credit through TCG and puts that store credit back into new specs. And he's just working on grinding those spec dollars up into something that gets him to a card that he can buy that he wants, you know, whether it's like an underground C or something else. I know underground C is, is actually something he's doing right now. Uh, it's one of the coolest models I've ever seen. So he started with, I, I'm going to speculate on this. I don't know the exact dollar amount, but like a hundred dollars. And now he's up to $280 in, in credit. And it's just a slow grind for him, but it's a side thing. He's not investing hardly any time into this. He's looking in conviction gaming or listening to a podcast or, you know, picking up a spec on Twitter or whatever the case may be, spends, you know, five minutes finding out a spec, buys a couple of copies of it, and then sits on them and sells them later. And not only is he slowly ranking up his CG player account when they do sell, but he's also generating this credit. So he's effectively zero. He's not putting any more money into this. He's just netting his gains and reinvesting them. Anyway, that's just, I guess, one last thought. If you're into this, definitely dabble like you're going into the shallow end of the pool and you know, get your toe wet, jump in, whatever you got to do. But don't necessarily dump, jump right into the deep end because it is a risk. There's a risk associated to this. There are real dollars and cents to be lost here. And it will eat you up very quickly if you're not on top of your game. All right. So that wraps it up. I'm going to give a quick shout out to just all the important links where you can find us at. As always, you definitely check out our website, convictiongaming.com. We have some cool stuff coming down the pipeline planned for the website, hopefully later this year uh, that I've got in the works. I can't really reveal much more about that yet, but got some work going on there. If you're not already, definitely check out our, our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash convictiongaming. We are patron exclusive discord starting june 1st we've sent a lot of reminders out about that but we're going to continue to we're going to be moving to a patron exclusive on june 1st and the the tiering will be 2.99 to get access to our discord for our podcasts and exclusive content such as Brett's articles for example those are going to be on the 5.99 tier which is uh, early access to all that content otherwise you'll be able to catch those about a week after they post and other than that, you can find us all on Twitter, uh, or well, I guess Bio is not on Twitter, but you can find myself, Chicago Style Gaming, Burge is, is GTutor, and, and Jesus is Hispanic at the Disco. And other than that, great, great cast. I appreciate everyone tuning in and listening. Thanks, guys, for joining.